Robert Reynolds. Welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm great, man. Good, good. Glad to have you on. Uh, you and I have uh, have spoken a few times in the past, but but lo and behold, Robert, uh, you've written a book, and this book is amazing. And so today we'd like to talk about it. Robert Reynolds is the author of of a book um, out there within Mormonism titled "Unstuck: How the Savior Frees Us from Our Favorite Sins." And I love just the just the cover alone, Robert, as you would. Well, no. One of my favorite topics in the church is is grace and the atonement and and how those things work. And this book hits on so many things that are just dear to my heart. Would you uh, Would you mind starting us off with just sharing a brief bio about yourself, and then uh, then we'll jump into the book. Sure. Um, brief bio. I'll try to make as fast as I can. Born and raised in Las Vegas. Oldest of nine kids. Eight boys, one girl. Uh, fantastic parents. Went to BYU undergrad, served a mission in South Carolina, went back to BYU, got married, since had kids, went to NYU Law School, worked for a law firm in New York City, found the killers, quit my job, moved back to Las Vegas, uh, been doing entertainment law, managing them, taking on some other clients. Uh, the latest, bigger client is Imagine Dragons, and the lead singer is my younger brother. And I wrote this book. <laughs> I think that's it. I want to cover, Robert, a ton of stuff in the book, and and the book is just amazing, and, and so many things just close to thoughts that I have about stuff. One of the things that, that came across my mind was Ether 1227 as I was reading your book, and I think you play on that scripture a lot. And I was just teaching a lesson in priesthood uh, two weeks ago where I was teaching the rest of the brethren in the room about grace and about uh, and using Ether 1227 kind of set up my lesson. In chapter two of your book, you've got this idea that, uh, that in fact, just the title of the chapter, that God can make any weakness a strength. And, and I think often in Mormonism, we've kind of gotten this, we, we've almost kind of missed this idea. And, and I wonder maybe if you could just talk for a moment on just your thoughts at the top of your head of, of how God can make weaknesses strengths and, and maybe where our reliance should be placed. Sure. I think there's two ways. The first, and I'd like to de-emphasize the first, is just the mere fact of seeking to oppose temptation creates spiritual strength. You know, the same way that weightlifters lift heavy weights to get stronger muscles or, you know, I work with some UFC fighters, the lawyer for them. And they train for fights at basically at high altitude or their masks to restrict their breathing and, and to try to imitate that. So the more struggle they have, the greater strength they have. And I believe the more struggle you have against temptation with the desire to overcome it, you can build strength. I want to de-emphasize that portion compared to, however, the strength that you can receive from the atonement and from a mighty change of heart, of dispositional change and, and grace, like you mentioned. Um, I think it's super interesting that you can be in a situation where the temptations that easily beset you and you go back to over and over again can actually become strengths. That those weaknesses you had, instead of being less weak, uh, can become strengths. And so I give some examples I'm sure you've seen in the book. Of, it just struck me as I was reading stories of the greatest strengths in Scripture. It seems like every single great spiritual strength was once a weakness. And that's from, you know, Moroni's writing, which was a weakness, or Moses and Enoch, who were slow of speech, and Isaiah was a man of unclean lips. And, of course, in the Old Testament, you know, they became the foundation of Old Testament Christianity. And, 
you know, Enoch is the prophet whose words inspired followers who'd once all gone astray. And I think it says we're full of all manner of wickedness. Became so righteousness, righteous they were translated. So he clearly knew how to use his words. And, you know, missionary work, you know, you've got Paul, Alma the Younger, the sons of Mosiah. I think those are the greatest missionaries we've got in Scripture. And if you look, at one time, all of them sought to destroy the church. So this idea that a great weakness can become a great strength is repeated so many times in Scripture, and yet so many of us think, this is my weakness. I'm stuck with this weakness. God gave me this weakness, and we leave it there and forget, you know, Ether 12, 27. He gave us the weakness so we can be humble. And if we humble ourselves before him, the Scripture goes on, of course, and we could, I could read it or Everybody knows it, but anyway, those weaknesses become strengths or can become. Yeah, and I, I think you hit on something. This idea from Ether twelve twenty seven that that first off, Jesus wants us to be well aware to recognize that that He gave us our weakness. Sometimes I think a lot of Mormons and, and Christians in general walk around thinking that the sinful nature is just it's just them. It's who they are and. And it's something somehow that they've brought upon themselves. And the reality is, right, that that God gave us this weakness. And as you also point out, God is also the one who takes this weakness away. And and yet Mormons seem to be running around trying to perfect themselves. And and I certainly think that they've gotten that from our culture, from, you know, talks of leaders, from the lessons that we've been given in manuals. And, and it seems like only recently we begin to make the shift that your book points out, which is, yes, Jesus gave us our weakness, but it's also Jesus who takes our weakness away. Maybe maybe talk for a moment about where maybe the average Latter-day Saint was a few years ago and and why this kind of a, a shift is needed um, to implement grace into our lives. Oh, man, I was a few years ago, I was on that other side of understanding the atonement. Um, I re I literally thought that by grace you are saved after all you can do meant I do all I can and you know maybe at the judgment bar at some some point after I die even grace intervenes and that is embarrassing to admit as someone that's graduated from seminary and served a mission and went to BYU and have always I've always been active and so my faulty understanding of the role that grace plays uh it's just embarrassing. And, you know, I think about the phrase personal righteousness. That phrase drives me crazy. Like, you know, my righteousness is all up to me. And and yet, you know, you look at the, the quotes from, geez, from, you know, Ammon said, we are nothing. As to our strength, we are we are weak. Moses, I know that man is nothing, which thing I never had supposed. You know, Nephi and King Benjamin said, great is the nothingness of the children of men. We know scriptures say we're less than the dust of the earth. We're not. We should not be going around flexing our arm of flesh and saying, look at my personal righteousness. That's a real mistake. I think it's a great spiritual risk that we as Latter-day Saints, and maybe other Christians as well, have tended to do for too long. And it sets you up for repetitive sin because you think you have the strength to overcome things, and you really don't. Yeah, and, I, and as you were talking there, I thought of a scripture in uh, in Second Nephi chapter 2 where where Lehi is talking to his son Jacob, and, and he says, he says, Nevertheless, Jacob, my firstborn in the wilderness, thou knowest the greatness of God, and he shall consecrate thine afflictions for thy gain. Wherefore, thy soul shall be blessed, and thou shalt dwell safely with thy brother Nephi, and thy days shall be spent in the service of thy God. Wherefore, I know that thou art redeemed. And then I'll pause here and I'll say, 
we could sometimes jump to the idea it's, you know, Jacob's going to be redeemed because of his personal righteousness, but that's not what Lehi tells him. He says, I know that thou art redeemed because of the righteousness of thy redeemer. I think you hit on it, which is that we've kind of gone around in Mormonism thinking that, that we can kind of save ourselves if we just check the boxes and do all we can. And then whatever little piece we fall short, then God's grace will make up the difference. And I think Ether 1227 is saying something completely different. And, and you're, you're certainly talking about this within the book that, that God has given us our weakness, I think almost intentionally, so that as we're trying to perfect ourselves, we'll fail. We'll bang our head into the wall so many times. We'll become humble knowing we can't do it on our own and then turn ourselves to Christ. And then his grace comes in. And, uh, and I just, I, I just think this book is so timely. Uh, Mormonism is, is almost in a sense, I felt like missed the boat on this, this important topic. And here you are kind of showing people that, that we've got to stop trying to work out our salvation on our own and, and turn ourselves to the Savior. Man, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, I was looking at Ether 12.27 to get it right while you're talking. And yeah, it says, I give unto men weakness that they may be humble. Just like you said, it seems to suggest exactly that. The Lord is saying, I'm giving you weakness so you will be humble. But you need to then be humble and you need to turn to him or or those weaknesses are going to remain weaknesses. They'll never become strengths. You'll never change. And uh, I think that we just... We don't have enough plain talk about that as well. I, I spoke at BYU Law, I don't know, a couple, three weeks ago, and had a great time. Actually, it was really fun to, to be able to call on law students uh, like law professors do in a, a spiritual setting. And um, anyway, I had everybody stand up. I said, everybody that sinned this week, stand up. And I said, okay, everybody that this week did sins that you've done before, stay standing. So if, you, if, if you've done something that's a brand new sin, you know, or all new sins this week, you can sit down. And, of course, the entire classroom, everybody stayed standing. I'm like, here we are, BYU students in Provo, Utah, like the, the Mormon cream, creme de creme. You know, this is, if anybody's righteous, it's you guys. And everybody is, as James says, you know, knowingly acting against the will of God repeatedly over the same sins over and over. So it's not like we just we try to justify it, say, yeah, yeah, we make mistakes and we slip. We are all seriously repeating sinners. And so one of the things I want to talk about isn't just this mighty change of heart, this idea of the Lord coming in and making a stony heart, removing our stony heart and giving us a heart of flesh and changing our disposition towards sin. I wanted us to be real, step one, about the fact that we are all serious repeating sinners. And there's specific consequences, in my opinion, to committing the same sin over and over and over again when it comes to repentance, of whether you feel like you're even repenting, if it comes to our inability to make real decisions about making real change. I think many of us know if we want to change. Uh, There's a, I'm going on too long, Bill. You cut me off if you want. There's a, the book was sparked by a quote from a bishop when I was on my mission in South Carolina. Because I had this bishop who had been a bishop for 14 years, which is like nobody's a bishop for that long. That's crazy. I've done that. that. Man, how how long were you? You were a bishop too, I remember. Yeah, four years, eight months, and uh, probably about a month and a half too long. (laughs) You you know it to the day. Yeah, imagine 14 years. And so I'm like, oh, man, you've got crazy insight. I'm like this young missionary, you know, eager to learn from everybody. And I said, "So, so what did you learn 14 years as a bishop? He said, the thing I learned most was we all narrow our sins down to the few we enjoy. Right, right. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, 
what are you talking about? Wickedness never was happiness. You know, I like pulled out all the scriptures. And I thought about it. I was like, whoa, this is true. And this is terrible. This is terrible. We, we claim that we're trying to, you know, improve ourselves and grow closer to the Savior and, and become more Christ-like and be therefore perfect is our ideal. And, and yet we all narrow these things down like, okay, these are the ones I like. I'm going to stick with these. And I just, I spent a lot of time really studying and thinking about it as I was writing this of like, why do we sin? Why do we repeatedly sin? And there's, you know, it ranges. I think at first you sin because you want to. And I honestly believe that you eventually sin repeatedly because you can't help yourself. But all of us, and I don't care if it's, you know, pornography addiction or alcohol addiction or whatever serious, obvious drug addiction that we talk about or something that's you know, seen as minor sins or sins of omission, we all find ourselves in those habits because we can't change, because the flax and cords become strong cords that bind us. In fact, there's the craziest quote, I've got to read this one to you, that I found from Elder James E. Talmadge. It's like maybe one of the wildest things. He says, repentance is not always possible. As the time of repentance is procrastinated, the ability to repent grows weaker. Neglect of opportunity in holy things develops inability. So if we procrastinate repentance, he's saying you can get to a spot where you can't repent. You can't change. You are stuck. And I think everybody that is trying to do it on their own and change those sins that they're stuck with over and over and over again is probably in that situation where they can't change themselves, where repentance is no longer possible because we've never really forsaken the sin. Right, right. Hence the the title, Unstuck. Uh, of your book. We're speaking today with Robert Reynolds, author of the book Unstuck, How the Savior Frees Us from Our Favorite Sins. I love, I love the questions you were asking them, that you were pointing out to them that, that here they are, these, these, you know, LDS, uh, students that, who should have some level of great righteousness and, and showing them that they were sinners just like anybody else. I had done the kind of the same thing two weeks ago in that lesson. I, I started off by reading the the Bible dictionary definition of grace where it talks about expending our own best efforts. And then I did 2 Nephi 25:23, right? The the you know, grace after all we can do. And and I sure. asked everybody in the class, I said, "Do you guys agree with that?" Cuz right, these guys these guys had grown up in this old paradigm of how they used to frame it, and they all were shaking their head yes, and the one guy raised his hand and made a comment, "Yes, we have to expend our own best efforts. We have to do our very best." And it was just this perfect moment, right? Because you know where I'm going with this. I, I look out at the, the class and I say, okay, good. Glad you guys all feel that way. Now let me ask you, which of you yesterday, I'm not talking about last week or last month or the last 10 years of your life, which of you yesterday expended your own best efforts? And all of a sudden it just hit. Oh, it hit. It was like they figured it out. And I said, okay, uh, how many of you did all you could do? And it, nobody in the class, <laughs> nobody in the class raises their hand. Every single one of them, all 25 of them in that classroom, it, it connected all of a sudden. They said, you know what? In their head, I mean, I could just see it because their comments came out later. It was this moment where they connected the dots and said, you know, I've grown up my entire life thinking I had to do my very, very best. And I now realize that not a single person in the entire room and, and you know, for that matter, the entire church or the entire planet ever expends their own best efforts or or does all they can do. And once you realize that you can't do that, then you don't have any choice but to turn to God's grace. You have no choice to do that, right? Yeah. Yeah, not only can you not do a great job, you can't even do your best. I mean, our mission president used to say the same thing. He'd say, no, sisters, 
you know, all the Lord asks is that you do your best. <laughs> it was a comforting thing. And I remember laying in bed. I was like, I was a hardcore obedient missionary. I tried really, really hard to live the rules. And I was like, I got two years to do this. I'm going to give it my all. And I would lay in bed, stressed out, thinking, man, I know I know, I could ride my bike faster. I know I could bear my testimony with, you know, greater power and, and quote more scriptures and, and resolve concerns with better ability. And I just kept thinking of how I can do better and better. And, you know, you look back, well, it's, you know, the one thing I think anybody that served a mission will relate to is you did not get those baptisms. Like all the great things that happen on a mission, it doesn't matter how hard you work. They just land on your lap. They're like, they call them golden investigators or just, you know, the last door when you're about to leave, you knock on and they answer. All these stories you hear, there's real truth in those miraculous stories when it comes to what happens on a mission. The great things that happen don't come from you. And I think that's like in our life. You know, the greatest things, the great blessings I have in my life, ranging from family to career to protection and things that could have gone really south and didn't, you know, it's not me. You know, you just, you, you got to realize that you aren't really that amazing. You're not that responsible, even when you're doing your best, for the greatest blessings in your life or in the lives of others. Right, right. And even... Even as you say that, I mean, if even if you have a day that you do the absolute best you can, even even if you spent, as King Benjamin says, right, every every moment in the service of your God, King Benjamin says, even if you do that, you're an unprofitable servant. In other words, no matter how hard you work, you could be your very best, and you're still working yourself into the red. Yeah. Um, in your book on page 54, this was a really cool connection that that I folded the page over and thought I've got to talk to him about this. You you have this little these little boxes with with really cool phrases from the chapters kind of placed into those boxes. Uh, you've got this one that says like any item with a warranty from its manufacturer, hard hearts must break before they can be replaced. And and I just want to get your thoughts on hard-heartedness and what that means to you and, and what it means that that heart has to break and, and what kind of experiences or what kind of things people do that can cause those hearts to break so that now God, as you said earlier, can essentially put a new heart in you. Great. Yeah, I'll tell, I'll tell a quick story and I'll say something about hard-heartedness. So hard-heartedness, I believe, is the heart grows hard the same way that a foot grows a callus where if you're wearing this tight shoe and you're walking and the shoe keeps rubbing, it's uncomfortable and your, your skin doesn't want to feel the discomfort. And so it hardens and you don't feel the discomfort anymore. And the spirit, when the spirit and the Holy Ghost tells you, or the light of Christ tells you what you're doing is wrong over and over again, it's not comfortable. We don't like it. And so, you know, we tell the Holy Ghost, back off, <laughs> quit, quit bugging me. I'm going to keep doing this. And our heart grows hard. And then it becomes, as the scriptures say, past feeling. We don't feel the Holy Ghost telling us, you know, that, and helping us feel the weight of, of the things we do, we're doing wrong or the love, joy, peace, and all the good blessings and miracles that come into our life and doing it right. And so we really, we're past feeling our, our heart's hard and it's got to change. And a mighty change of hearts is, a lot. in fact, the book originally was called, here's a dumb title. You'll love this one, Bill. It was called uh, Repetitive Sin and the Mighty Change of Heart. And Desiree Book's like, ah, how about unstuck? <laughs> I was like, all right, good call. But, uh, this concept of, of having the hard heart removed is fundamental to this. And so this chapter you're talking about where I talk about uh, having a broken heart, how, how you, you need to reach a real depth of humility in recognizing that you need grace, that you need a change of heart, 
that you do not have what it takes and that reading scriptures and church books and motivational speakers about willpower and working harder is not going to cut it. But you need grace, like we talked about. So brokenhearted story. Um, I've got a few in there, but one I love is I, I'm part of this Nevada Homeless Alliance and as part of directors of trying to solve homelessness in Nevada, which, by the way, Utah sounds like has done a fantastic job with veteran homelessness. So I, I'm finding homeless people from time to time. And I buy him meals and talk with him. And I met this kid, 24 years old, and serious heroin addiction. And we're eating, and he had to, like, in the Best Buy parking lot, go and shoot up heroin right in front of me so that he could eat. He would throw up the food. He could barely move. And I was like, I'm watching him die. You know, I'm watching his eyes and his face change. And he looks like, he doesn't look like he enjoyed it. And I was like, what, what are you feeling now? Do you feel high? And he's like, oh, man, no. I'm a maintenance user. He's like, I, I don't get high anymore. This is just like, I need to shoot up $100 of heroin every day just so I can eat, so I can move. And he hit rock bottom. The dude said, we're talking. Or I got to him over the course of a couple of weeks. He said, I want to get clean and help me get some Suboxone and Xanax in a hotel room for a week, and I'm going to do it. And he did. The guy changed his life. He's back with his girlfriend and his daughter. And uh, it was so awesome to be part of that. And so then I see this change, and so few people make these kind of changes. I'm like, wow, you figured it out. And I said, well, pretend I could make a charity for you, and I can get together, let's say, $10 million, and it's to help people like you. What do we do? And he said, no, I wouldn't even do it. What are you talking about? What's the secret? He says, no, there's enough resources for these people. He says, they need to want it bad enough. What they need is to hit rock bottom, and if there's anything you can do, it's help them hit rock bottom. Don't enable him. And he said he had two girlfriends in the past that were on drugs, and he was sober. He did everything he could to get him clean. He said they didn't, they wouldn't do it because they didn't want to. And I think that that's uh, that's one of the blessings of of sin. And of, you know, honestly, the weakness in our life is sometimes the consequences do humble us. They humble us enough that we get in a, a place where the Lord can intervene and, and make changes. Right, right. And as you're kind of hitting on this idea that that people have to get to a place where they want to change, where they want to stop relying on their own mode of doing things and rely on Christ and, and are open to that possibility. You also talk about in the book another reason that these changes sometimes can be difficult, and it's this idea that faith is a gift. Um, you have this quote in here that says, having faith is hard to do because you don't do it. Faith is a gift. And and I know like DNC forty nine talks about, you know, some are given to have faith in Lord Jesus Christ, others are given to believe in their in their words. And there's this idea too that there's several places in I think the DNC and and maybe other places where it talks about not all have the gift of faith. Maybe talk for a moment about that gift and and what it takes. Is it a matter of just having it or not having it or or is it something that can be developed? What are your thoughts in that direction? Well, there's a, uh, a quote by Elder Talmadge again in the Articles of Faith, and he says that the gift is preceded by sincerity of disposition and humility of the soul. So while it is a gift, you do need to really want it, and you need to be really humble before that gift is received. But I also think that being honest, the sincerity of disposition is overlooked too often when it comes to receiving the miracles that come by faith, that perhaps if you don't have that gift, you can still receive the miracles that come if you're honest. Um, 
I love the story of the child who's possessed by a demon. I think it's in the book of Mark where this demon is, is possessing the child and he's throwing him in the water and in the fire and trying to kill him. And the child is foaming and gnashing at the teeth. And the 12 apostles try to cast out the demon and they can't. So this is like crazy possession going on here, not, not normal level. And the Savior says, all things are possible to he that believeth. So this father, you know, if ever there's a father put in the extreme situation where it's like, okay, it's all on you, man. You've got to have faith right now. And your child is not going to be thrown in the water, or thrown in the fire and killed. And the father, of course, says, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. And on the basis of his honest asking, saying, help my unbelief. It's not good enough. I have unbelief here. Help me. But he was honest about it. On that basis, the demon was cast out. And the miracle happened. And I think that that first step, that sincere disposition, maybe we don't have the gift of faith. There's certainly many times in my life with respect to many things when I've not had that gift, and I wished I did. It would make things easier. But I know that if we can be honest with the Lord about where we are. You know, if you don't believe in something, be honest, right? He's, you can't fool God. It's Satan that says hide from God. God wants us to come to him as we are and be honest with him. If we are, he'll bless us. He will grant us the desires of our heart, but... He doesn't grant us the lip service that we say. He grants us the desires. We have to be real what our desires are. Right, right. And and so on, like this one side of the coin, this idea that that some may not at the beginning have this gift of faith, but that there are things within that that can be developed, that can be sought after. There's also the other side of the coin that you hit on as well, which is those who have 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 the gift of faith or have applied God's grace uh, and maybe I'll just share a little story of myself first, and then I'll lead into the part where you talk about it. There was a time when I was really struggling in the church. Basically, I had done what we talked about to begin with. I, I had tried to check all the boxes. When I joined the church as a teenager, I thought, man, this is it. All i got to do is these you know, 125 things, and I'm going to the Celestial Kingdom. And so I thought, okay, I can do this. I can hammer this out. I'm just that good. And so I start uh, trying to check the boxes to do all the things that are required of a Latter-day Saint to to be righteous or to to make his way back to heaven. And it got to a point where in my 30s, I just realized I couldn't do it. I, I was failing at this check-the-box strategy. And I just remember sitting down one day in a chair and, and sitting thinking to myself, and I remember the exact thought was, I'm not going to make it. I guess I'll hang around to help others out, but I just can't cut it. And at that point, I luckily I was open enough to reevaluating where I was at, and I got on this very big kick with grace. And I started reading uh, Stephen Robinson and Robert Millet and Brad Wilcox and, and, and kind of wrapping my head around this new idea of what grace is. And for the first time in my life, I was utilizing God's grace and it was marvelous. It was it was incredible. And it lasted for a couple of months. And then all of a sudden I realized that I just woke up one day and realized, uh-oh, I'm not doing that like I was doing a short time ago. Something has changed. And you hit on this in the book in part three. And you're borrowing from Alma chapter five where he, he talks about those who have sung the song of redeeming love. And then he asks, can you feel so now, which is the title of this section of your book. 
And, and you then go on to talk about how one can maintain this connection, how one can kind of stay in God's grace. Maybe a few thoughts for the listeners on how they can stay connected uh, to the power of Christ and his atonement. Well, there's, uh, there's obviously a million things that we can say about that. But in the book, I break it down to the two attributes that you receive when you, you have a mighty change of heart. It says you have no more disposition to do evil but to do good continually. So I kind of broke it down and said, if you're looking at your heart, if you had the change of heart, you're saying you feel the same, you can look and say, do I have this disposition to do good continually? And uh, do I have the, the disposition or disposition to do evil? How do I see those things? How do I see those temptations? Have I changed my mind? Have I changed my heart? And I want to flirt with Because I'll tell you, I have many, many times, maybe like all of us, I don't know, tried to get as close to sin as I could. I thought, you know, that in fact, I loved the story of, of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. I had that all wrong, where, you know, he runs away and, and his cloak is left in her hand. I thought, man, I escaped disfellowship or excommunication by a cloak. <laughs> you know, I just barely got out of that one. And uh, that's obviously a terrible thing to do. That is not having no more disposition to do evil. That's playing with fire. And you get burned when you play with fire. You know, this Elder Packer's old video of the spiritual crocodiles. You remember that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The video where, you know, the, the animal's close to the water and the crocodile jumps out and bites it. You know, you don't get anywhere near the crocodiles. And so the first step is really you've got to stay away from the temptations. What are your serious temptations? And that's, that takes great humility. You know, it's the bury the sword uh, story in the, in the Book of Mormon with the, the Lamanites. We have to bury our, bury our disorder, keep away from us those things that are really temp- tempting. There's the, uh, I think it's in the, in the book of Corinthians, where it says, There are temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not suffer to be tempt- tempted above that ye are able, but will with the way, uh, or will with the temptation also prepare a way you'll be able to withstand it. I might have missed that quote. But the key part there to me is God has prepared a way. It doesn't say every way. It doesn't say... You can get out of every temptation in any situation. You can be a heroin addict with a loaded needle all alone in a warehouse and just be strong. That's not the way. You can't be a 16-year-old guy in a house alone at night with a hot girlfriend. At least I couldn't be. You know, there's we have weaknesses that temptation can be greater than we can overcome. And, and when you have no more disposition to do evil, you're honest with yourself that you don't want to go back to certain sins and you take the steps to stay away from them. So that's one of the first things. Um, doing good continually. There's, you know, all kinds of practices that we can have to keep good, keep good blessings, good feelings, and good emotions, and keep the spirit in our life. The range is, you know, trying to be healthy, keeping the word of wisdom, reading scriptures, all the basic things that we know, but even like social development, you know, learning, educational development. There's a, there's a scripture, I can't remember what book it's in. I think, it's, yeah, it's in Paul, where he said, overcome evil with good. And there's this allegory that the Savior tells. Of a man who has unclean spirits leave the home, but he leaves the house bare. And so seven more evil spirits come right back in. You know, if we, if we make a change in our life and we leave our, our house bare, leave our life open, and we don't fill it with good things, doing good continually, we put ourselves in a spot to uh, fall back. So I think it's it's really important when you make changes to really fill that time that once was spent lying to yourself and doing things you don't want to do with other good things. 
Right, right. You've got a, uh, and, and I want to kind of, uh, ask this last question about, you know, the guts of the book. And then I want to, I want to ask you just a few questions about putting the book together and, and then we'll hit on kind of where the listener can find this. But you've got a section here, uh, no more disposition to do evil where you've got a quote that says, obedience increases when we focus more on our desires than on the resulting facts. And it, it seems like you're placing this focus more on, on our effort rather than the achievement. And, and I want to share a story of my own life and, and then get your thoughts on this idea of willingness, which I know you hit on several times in the book that we, that we ought to focus on the willingness, uh, in our mind of what we're willing to do and what we're trying to do rather than the actual achievement that's going on. And because I think when we focus on achievement and, and Again, you hit on this as well. When we focus on achievement, that seems to be kind of like looking at ourselves and saying, yeah, I'm, I'm accomplishing this. I'm getting this done. When the reality is that it's really God's grace, his, ennobling, his uh, uh, enabling power that allows us to, to do things we couldn't do on our own. So anytime we do accomplish something great, it's really his grace that's doing it anyway. When I was serving as a bishop, and this is one of the things I wish that we as a faith caught on and, and did something with, but when I was serving as a bishop, I was sitting up on the stand and the priest was doing the sacrament prayer and he was going through the bread prayer and the bread prayer is different from the water prayer. It's the only prayer that says willing and talks about keeping the commandments, but there's all these commas and keeping the commandments kind of the last piece of, of that whole sentence. And one day I was just sitting there and I wondered, I wonder if, you know, promising to be willing applies further on down the sentence to the keeping of the commandments. And I, and I remember reading in, um, Mosiah 18, I think it is where, you know, we're willing to mourn with those that mourn, willing to comfort those that stand in need of comfort. And then you got the bread prayer that uses this word willing. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could find a place where the savior himself in, in referencing the sacrament says the promise we're making is to be willing to keep the commandments. And I just had this like, light bulb moment where I, where I was, I felt like, okay, go to third Nephi where the savior comes and see what he says to the Nephites. And in third Nephi chapter 18, verse 10, it says, and when the disciple and talk about and he just, he just implemented the sacrament. He's just taught the Nephites how to bless the bread, how to bless the water. And he's telling them about what these promises mean. And it says in verse 10, it says, and when the disciples had done this, Jesus said unto them, blessed are ye for this thing, which ye have done. For this is the fulfilling of my commandments, and this doth witness unto the Father that ye are willing to do that which I have commanded you. And I think, you know, as your book just takes this giant step in trying to help the members of the church grasp, that the point is that rather than focus on what you're accomplishing, rather focus on the effort, focus on your willingness to do what's being asked of you. And when you do that, and I found this true in my own life, Robert, when you do that, grace comes in. If you stop worrying about how you're going to accomplish it and you just make the effort to do it, God accomplishes it and he does it through you. Maybe speak to that for a moment. This idea of, of uh, as the book points out, focus on our desires rather than the resulting acts. Man, I, I love what you said. Um, I, I feel like that's like one of the most important principles that we've all got to get. And the converse of that, first of all, by the way, of focusing on how we screw up is also a big mistake. There's a, I love the analogy of driver's education, where if you've got this sin, you keep doing all the time. 
it's like an obstacle off the side of the road. And in driver's education, of course, they say, you know, taking the, the class, don't look off the road at whatever you don't want hit because you're going to drive straight into it. And that's the same thing. You look at you look at the savior. You look at the destination and not these mistakes you're trying to avoid. And the same thing with, like you're saying, willing. We need to focus on what we want, not what we're trying to avoid, not our, our pitiful efforts that we're giving, and have an honest conversation with God. You know, wrestle with God like Enos and figure out what we really want and who we want to be. You know, there's, a, there's other great scriptures that says, God granteth unto men according to their desire in Alma. And in the, the DNC, it says, uh, all of us will enjoy that which we are willing to receive. The best gifts are given to the benefit of those who love God and keep all his commandments and him that seeketh to do so. I don't know any of us that keeps all of God's commandments, but we can certainly seek to do so. Like you mentioned in the bread prayer, we can want it. Yeah. And, and once, you know, if you're promising to keep the commandments perfectly and that's how you have his spirit to be with you, Every one of us walks out of sacrament meeting within a few minutes and probably a few minutes after the prayer itself. And, and we've fallen back down again and now we can't have the Holy Ghost. But, but if we're promising just to be willing to keep the commandments, then all of a sudden that's something we can go through the entire week and do. And, and now we can do something where we can actually have the Holy Ghost with us. And, and I think you've hit on all that really, just really sweetly in the book. I, I want to ask you, because of my own personal experience in dealing with this topic, what's been the feedback from the book thus far when people have have begun to realize that they need to shift away from focusing on their works and also, as you point out, their failures, which is depressing. And, and I think all of us get to a point where we fail and fail and fail and think that's what we have to do. And as far as accomplishing and not doing it, and all of a sudden we lose hope and we become depressed. Maybe speak for a minute about some of the feedback you've gotten when people begin to make this connection. So far, the feedback's been great. Uh, I had someone in the Nevada prison appreciate it and asked if we could send a few more books for a group there. And, you know, I've read, if you, if you get on DeseretBook.com, you can read the reviews. They've all been, uh, it's touching to, to see it make a difference. So uh, everything I've seen has been positive so far, I'm sure. As I say that, right, somebody's going to quick change those five-star reviews. But, you know, I, I really had, I had no desire to be an author, to be honest. I love to write, but I just, I really, as I came across certain scriptures on these concepts, they were so new to me and so important to me that I was like, I've got to get this down for myself. I've got to write this out. And when I did, I thought, you know what? I really think this might help people. And so I'm going to, let's give it a shot. And Desert Book wanted to publish it, which is blows my mind because so you know it's in the gospel was a gospel doctrine section and of course i'm not i haven't been a bishop i've never been a professor i'm just you know <laughs> i manage rock bands and do entertainment law so the fact that i snuck that one in there is a, a you know crazy blessing but you know I'm, I'm happy to see it do some good yeah and it really is a great book and i I think when these ideas, when, when this book is put in front of somebody, especially within our culture, when we're so focused on works righteousness and, and I see so much, um, emotion within our culture of people who, when they fall short, begin to give up and begin to throw in the towel and begin to feel hopeless. And, and when the ideas that you've got in your book get to them, all of a sudden they realize that it's not, it's never, it never was about them checking the boxes, but rather it was about them continually pressing forward with steadfastness, as Nephi says, towards the Savior. 
and all of a sudden that light comes back into their eyes and and I've seen it and it's the principles that you write about that do that it's it's this idea that his grace truly is sufficient I, I do want to say the our culture within our church up until I mean if we're completely frank Mormonism for the longest time has really been off on on teaching grace fully and we spent a lot of time saying things like expend our own best efforts and do all that we can do. And as you and I have talked about, you, you just you don't do that. Nobody does that. And I know certain people within Mormonism have hit on these ideas. We've mentioned some of them already. But it's not until a year ago, year and a half ago, that President Uchtdorf gives this talk and conference where I really think for the first time in my awareness of of all the history of the church and specifically the the 18, 19 years I've been in the church, there's this first time it seems like that the, that somebody as a leader, as someone with authority within the church is really laying out grace the right way. And, and I just wanted to get your thoughts as, as we move forward as a faith, do you have any, any ideas, any thoughts, any things that you say, Hey, you know, it would be awesome if, if, if I was a leader for a day, for instance, this is, these are the things I would do to kind of get these ideas out there. Any, any thoughts from you on, on how we as a faith can, yeah, how we as a faith can maybe hit on grace better. On grace, man, his talk is amazing. That is, uh, that's exactly what people need. I mean, I think it is so depressing when you think about, again, the question I asked all these BYU students, we're all committing the same sins over and over and over again. And what kind of repentance does that mean we're doing? We're either not repenting and feeling shameful and guilty about the fact that we're just not, we're doing the same sin, or we're doing this fake half-hearted repentance where we kind of say we want to change like weak New Year's resolutions, but we don't really want to change. You know, we want to change if it's not too hard. It's not, you know, and it's just, we, we all find ourselves lying to ourselves, lying to God, and in these cycles of sin that are terrible. And the more you just say, oh, you know, buck up, you can do it. One, two, three, willpower, you know, do some push-ups and then repent. Uh that's just, that's not helping anybody. And to have a message of hope that says, you know, you, you don't have what it takes. The Lord has what it takes. There's that scripture of Nephi. My heart exclaimeth, O wretched man that I am. My heart falleth because of my flesh. My soul grieveth because of mine iniquities. I mean, covet out because of mine temptations and the sins which so easily do beset me. I could keep reading that, but you know, that's, that's the prophet Nephi that says that. We are all stuck in cycles of serious sin, and it is depressing and heartache. It causes heartache. And hearing a message of hope and grace and an emphasis on willingness and sincere desire, I just think is true and important and, and leads to real change in a way that focusing on our arm of flesh and relying on our ability to obey alone doesn't doesn't come anywhere near. Yeah, and, and Paul... Paul seems to pick up this exact same same vision that you do, right? That he, he talks about having this thorn in the flesh, and he spends three seasons trying to get rid of it. This is Second Corinthians chapter twelve, I believe. And and Paul essentially, finally, just says, "Look, the Savior spoke to me and said, you know, essentially, in your weakness are my strengths made known." And and all of a sudden, Paul changes his tune, and he's like, "Yeah, I glory in my infirmities. I glory in my." persecutions. I glory in my, you know, my rebukes. And it's almost like Paul saying, look, man, I'm just a fallen man and I totally get it now. You know, I'll give the glory to God. God's the one who's going to make me better than I am. And, and I'm just going to stop being stressed over the fact that I have these weakness because he gave it to me anyway. Um, yeah. And, and so I think you just hit on all this, 
so well. Again, we're speaking with Robert Reynolds, author of the book Unstuck, How the Savior Frees Us uh, from Our Favorite Sins. Robert, uh, and I think you hit on this in the very beginning. I want to touch on this one more time. It's really easy to get rid of sins that you have no desire to commit. Um, your book seems to pick up this idea, which I think is really new and fresh, this idea that every one of us, every every child of God, there are certain things we improve on and, and we do better at and we put certain sins behind us. The ones that are really tough are our favorite sins. They're the ones that we uh, we enjoy doing. Um, maybe could you would you give us maybe a little insight maybe in your own life how you've applied grace as as in that in light of kind of that idea? You know, I uh, I did uh, an interview with Matt Townsend on radio. And someone gave him some notes about what the book was about. And one of the notes was how, how Robert Reynolds overcame repetitive sin. <laughs> I can assure you, that's very Paul. Um, I, I wish, I wish I could stand up and say, you know, I figured it out. I've done it. Um, I mean, I, I can tell you, I have absolutely experienced, um, what it's like to have temptations go away that were serious. Um, but I've also experienced them coming back. Um, it is, it's, we don't just need a, a mighty change of heart once. We got to keep checking the heart and keep working. And I am far from perfect. So, you know, I, I wouldn't set myself up as an, an icon of, of overcoming sin. Um, but I, I will say I'm willing. <laughs> I'm happy to stand and raise my hand with all those who are, who are willing to be more like the Savior because I am. Perfect. Perfect. Where can uh, where can people pick up the book? You know, it's it's everywhere. It's a des- everywhere that you know, Deseret Book, Barnes and Noble, Amazon. You can buy it online. There's a uh, an audio CD, which I should warn everybody. It's my voice reading. So if you think my voice is bad here, don't get it. <laughs> it's also in uh, paperback. Um, all those places. Wonderful. We will uh, we'll link to it on the episode as well as in the Mormon Discussion Podcast bookstore. I uh, I just appreciate you taking time out of your day to spend it with us and uh, just really grateful for your voice, uh, a new fresh voice in Mormonism that's pointing people back to Christ and saying, look, man, his his grace is sufficient. It's right there for you to pick it up and run with it. And uh, and it's not about checking the boxes. Thank you so much for being on today. Man, thank you, Bill. This is a real honor. Appreciate it.